0: Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consults Rx podcast, and we have a couple kind of unique things about this episode. Yeah. Number one, and this one's not really unique because we've done a bunch of them, but it's accredited, so we're going to have an accredited episode for you guys uh, who are free CE members, so you can get one hour of continuing ed just for listening to us Babylon for an hour.
1: Well, we haven't done this topic specifically. In yeah, years, no, we haven't, least.
0: but we have done a lot of, uh, I said unique, but we've done a lot of continuing ed. Oh. In general, so it's I not see. really unique. I but see. what is unique is we've always bragged about our limited number of episodes that we have had to go back and either redo or fix something. Yeah, yeah, edit for any, yeah, at all. And so last week when the tropical storms, uh, hurricane, depending on when it hit, you know, land where you were, uh, came through, Cole and I had postponed our recording until literally the night of the storm impending. As
1: it was actually hitting. Yeah. Like the probably... The most significant part of it was probably while I was sitting here.
0: Which luckily we're in South Carolina, so we didn't get no too much. I, I nothing even like nothing it. like Florida, but uh, yeah, it was hitting this hitting us right as we started, and we were just so uh, braggadocious about how... That's the only way to say it. Yeah, because we're like, you know, we're we're putting ourselves in danger. Not really. We're in my house. We're totally fine. I said this is how committed we are to our craft, that we're recording in the middle of a hurricane. No regard for our own safety, and we're just here for you guys. And then at like 57 minutes of the hour, (laughs) the power just flickers off, and it destroys my audio and uh, the the recording file. So... (sighs) Here we go again. Yes. Gout number two. Gout number two. Which is, uh, we hadn't said it
1: yet, but that's the topic today is gout. It is. Which I haven't, um, we were thinking that this is the third time that we've had to re-record something because of a technical difficulty. If there's anybody out there that knows whether that's correct or whether it's more. If
0: you've known if we had to correct it.
1: Let us know. I can't remember what the second one was. The first one was our initial acne episode. Yeah. But I don't remember the second.
0: Yeah, I don't either. But I'm pretty sure you're right. There's there, this is the third time.
1: It could have been when we did acne again years later. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise. that would have been a
0: bit ironic? Yeah, I think gout's going to be one of those. Uh, yeah, infamous. Yeah, episodes. infamous topics that we just never do again. Yeah. But uh but yeah, we were all excited. Uh, we had a new drug approval. I mean, it's not a new drug, but a new uh, indication approval that it went through and we were in the hot off the press with that. Not anymore. Now we're super late to the party.
1: The great thing is since we are so unscripted, mm-hmm. it's just going to be a totally different episode <laughs> right. than what you would have gotten. So likely it will be better. Well, maybe. Or not. Or
0: a week later of sitting on this information that we haven't thought about. since yeah. uh, maybe it'll be worse.
1: Also, we never like to tell jokes twice. So we won't be repeating the jokes. Right. So these are going to be our secondary jokes. We write the jokes. And they're they're not going to be as
0: funny. Yeah, could you imagine? I know. (laughs) This is our best try at being funny. (laughs) But uh, but yeah, so it is an accredited episode. And so those of you who are free CE members and have uh, unlimited membership and have access to all of their content, make sure that after you get done listening um, to the episode, you'll get a a password that will be given at some point during the the episode. And you'll use that. Log into free CE. Go to their learn section. And then click on podcasts and then look for this episode. Use that post activity password to access that multiple choice 10 question quiz. And then after you pass that with flying colors, you'll get your one hour CE credit for pharmacist and nurses. So big thanks to, to Free CE for continuing to work with us and um, make sure you guys check them out if you have not already. Great, great content and lots of good stuff to choose from. And uh, all of, you know, they can really fulfill all of your continuing education needs. But and they've partnered with us for so long, it's it's uh it's crazy crazy yeah now that you think they would have upgraded by now, but luckily <laughs> for us they have not. So thanks to you guys who are already using them, and uh, thanks to them for continuing to work with us. So gout, yes. What are we going to start with gout, Cole, for the second time?
1: <laughs> All right, let's do a little bit of background. Yeah, I wish I really wish that you guys could see how long we bragged about the fact that we were recording in the middle of a hurricane. Yeah. Right. It, was, it would it would make all of this much more comical. It
0: was it's funny for us to look back even though we wasted an exorbitant amount of time. <laughs> Maybe
1: but, it'll be funny after we've recorded again and we're done. <laughs> right, right. Not super funny today.
0: <laughs> but yeah, it's fun. it's it's fine. It, it is it is kind of. It's fun. the first technical difficulty we've had in a while and it wasn't even our fault this time.
1: True. It was mother the, nature. Yeah. Who we mocked
0: during the right. episode. Right. So it was it was 100%. It was our fault. It definitely definitely we should have uh should have just been humble.
1: Yeah. Um, So you've probably heard this about gout, but historically it was referred to as the disease of kings because it was frequently associated with um, people who were in the upper class related to um, things that they ate maybe their weight, just their overall diet and lifestyle. And we'll kind of talk about some risk factors that, that you kind of point back to that. Um, it occurs because of elevated serum urate levels. Um, it's the mo- single most important risk factor uh, to the development of gout. There's a linear relationship between the risk of an attack of, um, of acute gouty arthritis and then the elevated serum levels. And we'll talk later on about um, guidelines and, and how important it is to, or whether it is important to um, treat to a specific goal, uric acid level or not, and how there's some um, conflict there. Um, it affects men more often than women by about three times, um, so female is definitely definitely a risk factor i was going to ask you if anybody in your family had gout boy did this whole thing last time yeah. so i can't do it again
0: we've established no i, I i've been like well it's a good question cole. yeah no we had this whole con and it turns out no no none of us we can't
1: we can't fake banter it has to be natural nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. no no banter from the original episode will occur in this episode. the good thing is is
0: you, you've realized that what you see is what you get with us i know <laughs> it's <laughs> it's definitely uh off the you know a lot of it's off the dome unfortunately yeah. but uh but yeah so cole mentioned uric acid um that's kind of the the terminal step um, in the breakdown and degradation of purines, and you know, purine-rich foods being a, a big, um, you know, percentage of purine-rich foods would include like meats, fish, um, different things like that, which is why you know is considered to be more of a upper class diet, um, you know, back in the day. Mm-hmm. But uh, uric acid as a whole is is just a waste product. There's not uh, any specific physiologic purpose that our bodies use it for uh, at least in humans um, but it is a just a waste product um, the purines um, you know in which those uric acid is actually being produced in the byproduct of um, they they're coming from three different sources so we mentioned the dietary purines and then also the conversion of tissue nucleic acids into purine nucleotides and then de novo synthesis of purine bases as well. Um, so any type of like abnormality that could occur in these regulatory systems obviously can result in that overproduction of, of uric acid and that can can lead to a eventual gout flare. Um, there's also some medications and, and other things that can increase the risk, um, some drug induced um, medication or some drug induced uh decreases in uric acid clearance. So medications that can then reduce your, ability, your kidney's ability to, to um, clear that uric acid uh, include certain diuretics. We know thiazides and loops um, will increase serum uric acid levels when you first start on those. Um, and then cyclosporin and tacro are two other um, commonly C-meds that can uh, decrease uric acid clearance and raise serum levels. And then um, low-dose salicylates, and then pretty much uh, some of our other obscure meds like our TB medications like ethambital. um Ethanol actually can increase, uh, decrease the uric acid clearance. Levodopa is another one as well. Um, salt restriction, not really a medication, but um, salt restriction can also uh, result in decreased uric acid clearance. And then obviously there's certain genetic predispositions. We, we have these um, different transporters that are, you know, important for regulating the renal and gut uric acid clearance. And if there's a, a variant in those genes that encode for those trans, uh, transporters, that can obviously lead to a decrease in that uric acid clearance as well. Right. Um, gout of the foot
1: uh, is frequently... Um complained of, even though it can happen in, in multiple joints. Um, podagra would be gout of the foot, especially the big toe. It's the initial manifestation in about half of cases and eventually involved in about 90% of cases. So you'll, you'll frequently have it in the foot. Um, but it can occur in the ankle, wrist, finger joints, knee, um, pseudogout, which we'll talk about at the end can occur in other large joints as well. Um, I'd encourage you to look at a picture of, um, some uh, ToFi that you can find online. It's a bit disturbing, but
0: yeah, uh, well, we'll, we were going to put a picture of it on here, but for those of you with the, the uh, YouTube to watch the YouTube version, we're trying not to get ripped off YouTube.
1: <laughs> right. Um, so as far as what is an elevated, um, serum, uric uric acid level, serum, urate level, um, it's generally defined as being above 6.8 milligrams per deciliter. This is where um, crystals can form at physiologic pH in temperature, um, so in normal circumstances above this level, they can form crystals, which is what's going to cause the pain um, uh, with gout. Gout flares occur due to uh, an acute inflammatory response to the crystal deposits. Um, they release stimulate the release of humoral and cellular inflammatory mediators, um, but generally the flares are self-limited, so... Uh, We're going to treat symptoms and wait for it to um, subside, but there's also some uh, medications we can use to decrease the inflammatory response, which we want to do as well to prevent it from being so severe. Um, And I mentioned Tofi, which um, may definitely be present in advanced gout, Um, large uh, deposits of the crystals that um, can be jarring to look at. But it's a very, um, I mean, it's an extremely, painful situation people have described just the the movement of a bedsheet over your toe can cause excruciating pain so it's definitely debilitating
0: when an when an attack is happening and uh you know what youtube won't take us off for this so <laughs> oh. so uh, for those of you watching the video version um here we go hey, there's some tofi coming off of the the large toe it is distressing it is it looks very painful if YouTube tube askle tomos a bee sting yeah, but but uh, yeah, definitely um, we want to avoid the, those tophi from formation from from occurring. So that um, obviously that doesn't we're, we're if we have tophi present, it means that there's more damage done to the joint and probably more of a prolonged chronic gout situation. So hopefully we can avoid that from ever getting to that point. Um, so yes, and there are some risk factors for uh, gout that we can. Know, look for um, there. There's definitely some modifiable risk factors, um, so things like you know. Uh obesity for one being a big one um you know there's definitely things that uh hypertension hyperlipidemia um, uncontrolled diabetes ckd um, obviously we see modifiable in regards to that you can help to manage you know the the better we manage those disease states or comorbidities the better uh, or less risk we'll have for developing hyperuricemia Um, but it doesn't that again, like Cole said at the beginning, doesn't always result in you know actual risk reduction in gout because it's the uric acid levels only so much. But um, you know there's also the non-modifiable risk factors as well, which we can't do too much about, and that would be age, sex, ethnicity, genetic variants. Um, those things are just going to predispose potentially at least to a, a eventual hyperuricemia situation. Right, but. Um, we can kind of break down the treatment options and things into two different phases. We have our acute gout and we have our chronic, you know, potentially tofacious gout. Um, so uh, acute gout would be a situation when, you know, it's, it's characterized by this very sudden onset of joint tenderness, thema, warmth, um, swelling is usually accompanied uh, by extreme pain as well. And it's something that it can be associated with a fever, however, it doesn't, you know, doesn't always um, correlate with with a gout attack. And then other like systemic symptoms may be present as well. And like Cole said, typically is especially even a first uh, attack, it would be in the foot or um, usually the big toe. And then with chronic gout, especially if it becomes tophaceous gout, or you know we're thinking of these those to- tophi being formed, those subcutaneous nodules. Um, that's usually in the setting of years of recurrent gouty attacks that's eventually led to that that tophi formation
1: right um i'll also say that um generally especially at the beginning it involves one joints we've mentioned the toe the foot area um over time uh, it can become polyarticular so it can affect multiple joints um each attack can be different they can have um especially if you don't if it's not treated the symptom patterns can change over time, so they can become more polyarticular, they can involve more proximal and upper extremity joints, they can occur more often, they can last longer. So definitely important to, um, to get a patient treated, especially if, if they're having frequent attacks. And with the acute gout, um, it, it typically reaches maximum intensity within 8 to 12 hours, um, but can... And It's important to note with the pseudo gout. I don't know if we'll bring it up later, but it's a little more insidious. So the onset occurs over several days, as opposed to being so, so acute
0: as um, as these attacks. Yeah. You want to talk meds? Yeah, let's jump into it. Okay. Colchicine. Yeah. Off?
1: So colchicine is um, a mainstay of treating an acute attack. So the first uh, part that we'll talk about is how we manage an acute gout attack. Uh, branded as colchris, but generics available. It inhibits the polymerization of microtubules and prevents the activation, degranulation, and migration of neutrophils. So it's going to decrease the inflammatory response. Um, it actually has a number of things to kind of be on the lookout for. It can cause myelosuppression. Um, it can cause neuromuscular toxicity, specifically um, rhabdomyolysis. Um, so uh, use with caution with cyclosporin, diltiazem, verapamil. Brazil and statins, they can all increase the risk. Um, our episode that um, was probably the most recent one released when we talked about the Lodoco-2 trial um, was um, looking at in, um in its cardiovascular benefit uh, related to its anti-inflammatory effect. And I think 97% of the patients in that study were taking statins, and they didn't see an increased myopathy risk, which I think is very positive, at least for colchicine. Um, so maybe not as much of a concern there, but definitely with the others, be on the lookout for it. Um, common side effects that you'll hear a lot of people um, complain about would be diarrhea, um, very common, as well as nausea, vomiting, low B12
0: as well. And you, I don't know, Cole, you may have mentioned this already, but it... it... Colchazine is something you'll see being used acutely, obviously, but also being taken as maintenance therapy. So that's more so where like the low B twelve and some of the myelosuppression and things that he addressed, um, obviously, would come into play. Usually for a, a acute loading dose treatment of colchazine, it's not the end of the world to have you know those type of things. You're not going to get that myelosuppression and whatnot. But um, it is used and you know sometimes up to twice daily for long periods of time. So right. it's important to know those those type of things. Um, dosing is, is important when we're talking about a acute flare. So if the patient's symptoms have started within the last 36 hours, then the colchicine is dosed as two tablets, which is 1.2 milligrams. Um, so it's 0.6 milligrams when you're using it for, for gout. Um, it's 0.5 milligrams with that new Low cardiovascular. Dose yeah. R- which has apparently reduction. been
1: around in other countries, that dosage. Yeah. We just don't really...
0: We just were like, we're gonna do one we're gonna do 0.6. Tenth, tenth more. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, two tablets are one point two milligrams, uh, and then one hour later, you take an additional tablet or zero point six milligrams. So one point eight total over the course of that hour, and then ideally, you'd want to wait about three days before you would repeat that same dose. Now, if you have um, a creatinine clearance that is less than thirty, and you know, so our patients with more. Um, Advanced kidney disease, we we do have to wait a little bit longer because that colchicine will accumulate and, and um, build up in the system. And so two weeks is the ideal time if your creatinine clearance is less than thirty mils per minute, uh, in order to give another like loading dose. Now, when you're using it prophylactically, you know it's maintenance therapy, uh, and like I said, it can be zero point six milligrams once so up to twice a day. And then if you're going to use that prophylactic dose in a patient that has Chronic kidney disease—that's uh, where um, the, the, the less than thirty mils per minute comes into play again. Um, and that, in that case, you give zero point three milligrams, so a half tablet of colchicine um, is the the dose to not allow it to accumulate in this, in the system too much. Right, right.
1: Um, so we also have NSAIDs, which is um, in many cases patients might try to treat this over the counter
0: before. Oh, real quick before we go on. Sorry. I just, because I mentioned the 36 hour thing, but if it's been longer than 36 hours, the cold will no longer be effective. I'm sure that you are aware of that, but I just want to make sure I at least reiterated that point. So 36 hours or less, obviously start it. If it's been longer than that, stay tuned to what Cole's going to say.
1: You know us. We're always thorough.
0: Yeah, yeah. about five minutes after we were supposed to be there. <laughs>
1: um, so, yeah, in, in that case, um, or in other cases, you can use NSAIDs. Um, so, generally, naproxen, um, endomethacin seems to be used for gout a lot and less so for other things. There's also sulindac, if you've ever heard of that one, but uh, I've seen it a couple times. Yeah. Um, so, NSAIDs can be used. Also, corticosteroids, so prednisone for five to ten days can be helpful. Methylprednisolone um, IV if needed, or IM for one dose if they can't tolerate an oral dose. Uh, you can even do intra or intraarticular corticosteroid injections um, in patients with involvement of more than one or one to two joints if they can't take oral medication. Which especially looking at that toe-fi toe, just looks absolutely terrible. If I was going to stick a needle inside one of those joints that's affected, but yeah.
0: That's you'd you'd want to get that medication right in there as fast as possible. Wonder if they numb anything. Probably, nah, probably
1: not. Probably not. Just go for it. Just go for it. Yeah.
0: No, no, you know, no pain.
1: Well, then you'd have to get five sticks around the site, and then you get the actual stick in the site. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point.
0: So it may be worse. Yeah, I just ripped my headphones out of the uh, (laughs) out of my ears. So I was sitting. I was like, oh, perfect. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so we have NSAIDs, and, and it is interesting because indomethacin, I, I mean, like Cole said, you really don't see that being utilized oh. in outside of gout. I mean, but for it, gout, it seems to be like the one they like to use. Which is it's kind of crazy because it's it hasn't been shown at least from a very quick literature search I did. There hasn't really been any evidence that that one is superior to naproxen or celecoxib for that matter um solindac i always pronounce that wrong but indomethacin too the other thing i feel like that it doesn't get talked about very much is it it can have some cns activity and so they the thought is it can cause some like confusion or headaches and maybe even like some like aggressive type behavior in some patients some agitation and so in that regard i feel like it would and it's more cox one selective so you'd have to worry more about the gi issues more about the kidney problems so it's interesting i don't know if that is just one of those things that a great marketing company back in the day and that's just people think gout people i mean people think endomethacin when they think of an anti-inflammatory for gout
1: i'd be interested to talk to somebody who Actually, knows what they're talking about, right? Who's prescribed it not because they learned from somebody who prescribed it, but maybe around the time that it was starting to be prescribed. And and say,
0: because I mean, naproxen, I I believe, is also approved for a gout flare up as well. And even celecoxib has evidence, yeah. So, I think really what it would come down to for me personally would be if they have cardiovascular risk, you know, cardiovascular risk on top of gout, I'd want to go naproxen. If they have no other health conditions and I'm not really worried about their stomach or anything else, then sure, indomethazine. So I can be like the cool kids. Right. And then if it's something where I'm really worried about kidney or, or GI issues, then maybe celecoxib. and then taking into consideration the potential for a cardiovascular risk and all mm-hmm. that, which may or may not be an actual risk, but we don't really know.
1: Right. Because but then, the, then if the you want to be really cool, yeah, yeah. you use Sulendek. So
0: Yeah. If you want to be the coolest, <laughs> you pull out Sulundeg that has not been used. since 94. <laughs> I do remember that... Uh, When I was, I was probably an intern. I remember this is the last time I saw anybody on it. I remember it just gets you like yellow chalk, like all over the counting trays. Yeah, the yellow pills. So that's you're right. It's probably why I fell out of favor. (laughs) Yeah, pharmacists and technicians complaining about counting. We just were like, if one more person prescribes this, (laughs) we're done. It's not like those potassium.
1: Was it potassium citrate pills? Little yellow ones that t- that uh, not, not taste because yeah, I've never I tasted them. Is it citrate?
0: I guess it is. Yeah, because
1: the chloride ones are the yeah, big, big ones. heifers, but the potassium citrate are kind of like yellow, the smaller ones. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah,
0: get get everywhere.
1: Yeah, but they 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 you know they look tasty,
0: look like candy, <laughs> which is always what you want in medicine. Yeah. But uh, did you talk already about if the patient's having severe attacks no. or? Um, do you as far as you know, a patient who is having. You know, multiple joints that are being affected by the gout flare. Um, sometimes one medication is not enough, and so using combinations of these three, you know, classes is is appropriate in some cases. Um, especially if they have you know, polyarticular gout where the multiple, especially large joints, are, are involved at the same time, then we would probably want to use combo therapy just to make sure we're getting that inf- inflammation under control as quick as possible. So it could be you know the full-dose, loading dose of colchicine plus an NZ. You could do a full-dose oral corticosteroid plus colchizine, um, and you could even do intraarticular steroids along with colchizine or NSAIDs as well. Probably not a good idea to I'd do oral steroids on top of the intra-articular uh, steroid, but um, you know, you'd know you want to use two different mechanisms if possible. Yeah, but that would definitely be um, ideal if, if there's multiple joints, um, especially if they're large. And then also don't forget about our non-pharmacological treatments, so you know, rest ice, you know, things like that, elevation of the affected joints. If the the patient, if it's so severe that the bed sheet will cause severe pain, maybe tell them to keep the covers off and the AC, you know, maybe not so high. Yeah. But uh, definitely don't forget some of the, the simple things we can do to treat the pain. I have to keep it
1: pretty cold when I sleep. I do too. But y'all have a big dog that needs a cold, right? Yeah,
0: me, I, and me though, because I, I I get hot in like you're two the, seconds. Al, you're also the big dog. That Not a needs big a dog. Cold. I'm just like I get hot in two seconds, and yeah. so I'd like to keep the I keep the AC pretty cold. It's like sixty seven in our house when we sleep. It's really cold. Is it? How does the how does Jackson like? It? So he's the same way as I am. If he's sitting like outside for more than two seconds, he's like his hair's like drenched, like with, like he's
1: sweating already. <laughs> sixty seven is so cold. I thought I kept it cold, and it's like
0: seventy one. Yeah, no. i i go to some of my friends place that's like they keep their house like 75 76 i'm like i would die in there <laughs> i'd literally have a heat stroke <laughs> i am sitting there just so uncomfortable i mean it's 71 time.
1: at night i guess it's like 73 74 during the day
0: i got it's a do you want do you want to use the econo uh, like setting on my thermostat no 68 <laughs> 68 68, you ever touch it it's
1: literally like heat index of 115 and mike still has it on 60
0: what's great is we don't have to use the heat that we don't really ever run the heat in winter
1: ah because you just like
0: it cold. yeah like it cold so i wake up it's like 50 degrees in the house i'm like yes i
1: mean how does your my air conditioning can't even keep it down to like 72 during how hot it's been the last couple months your Mm -hmm. conditioning has no problems
0: uh no it'll it'll get up there a little bit i can tell it runs all day long trying to keep up but i just go you know what Keep on trucking. Keep on trucking. Do <laughs> do do your job. <laughs> yeah. If one job didn't, that's not make me sweat. If you
1: die, we will replace <laughs> we you. We will
0: replace you with a better unit. <laughs>
1: Immediately. Um, okay, so just to sum up um, really quick, mild to moderate pain, if it's within 36 hours, we're thinking colchicine, otherwise NSAIDs or possibly systemic or intraarticular corticosteroids. Um, or really we'd probably reserve the intraarticular for more severe pain or multiple joints. If it works, then counsel on lifestyle changes to prevent recurrent attacks. If it's inadequate or if there's a severe case, we can combine colchicine with an NSAID or an oral corticosteroid or NSAID plus the injections um, and all those sorts of things. Um, If that's not working, just switch to something different. If it's um, successful, then counsel on follow-up. But if it's not successful, then we might want to consider Back to the drawing board back to the drawing board or we can consider the kind of um not newer injectable therapy but the therapy that has gotten a new approval for acute gal
0: right Right. yeah amazing segue yes thank you <laughs> i thought so that's good do you want to uh go through the the new med or? yeah
1: um so the medication is canakinumab um it's branded as ilaris and it's been around for a while Um, even in the U S being used for various things that are relatively rare, um, cryopyrin associated periodic syndromes, familial Mediterranean fever, still disease, um, adult onset stills disease. It's been used in other countries and approved for, um, acute gout treatment. And it's been used off label here for a while for acute gout treatment. I think Mike was saying in our previous episode, (laughs) uh, that it was, they attempted an approval in like.
0: It was 2011. They they had tried to get it approved, and then the FDA panel had voted against the approval at that point for treatment of acute gout uh, flares. And uh, and then in 2013, the European Medicine Agency approved for that indication. So it's been a full 10 years after that, um, because August 2023 is when it was approved by the FDA here. After we got some additional studies that were completed and basically showed efficacy and all that. But it's it's really indicated for an acute flare that's refractory to NSAIDs, colchizine, and re- repeat courses of corticosteroids. Yes. So that's the important piece of it. So it's I'd say the,
1: the FDA approval is definitely a win for patients because that's definitely going to make it a lot easier to get approved um, by insurance if it comes to that. Um, so, yeah, like Mike said, reserve use for frequent flares and who these first-line therapies didn't work or they're contraindicated or the patient can't take them, um, which, you know, there are definitely some cases where, where that um, for sure happens. It's a subcutaneous injection. It's just 150 milligrams as a single dose. Um, repeat doses may be administered, but it has to be at least 12 weeks since your first dose. Um, and there are some things to be aware of as far as, warnings and precautions. Well, before that, I'll talk about how it works. Um, so it is a um, it reduces inflammation, that's its ultimate goal. And it does that by binding to interleukin 1 beta. Um, interestingly, there's different subunits of interleukin 1, so it does not bind to interleukin 1 alpha or interleukin 1 receptor antagonist. It's not that, um, but it specifically interleukin 1 beta and prevents the interaction with the cell surface receptors. So that's how it works. As far as um, kind of what to be aware of, it has some warnings and precautions related to hematologic effects like decreased white blood cells, neutrophils, and platelets that were observed. Um, it can increase your risk for infections. Um, it seems to be um, a fair amount of patients who, who experience an increased risk or who experience infections. Um, it can reactivate TB, increased risk for malignancies, various things that, that you would expect from monoclonal antibodies.
0: And it is in injected by a healthcare professional. Yes. So that's the other thing. It's not something they leave and go get at the pharmacy and then to give themselves. It's a subcutaneous injection, like Cole said, but it's, it is administered by the provider. That's a very good point.
1: That's a very good point. And I would think that a lot of the warnings and adverse effects wouldn't be associated as much with treating for acute gout, which is just very periodic, versus treating for some of these other conditions that might taking it every Every eight eight weeks weeks. or every four weeks or something like that um so i wouldn't be too concerned about them but it's still worth noting like weight gain i wouldn't probably wouldn't expect weight gain with one dose but over time maybe so um diarrhea maybe which is a common side effect or nausea um and then the increased risk for infection i would probably think more so related to uh, long-term use but then headache and things of that nature it can cause as well
0: yeah for sure but yeah, so it's it's been being it's been used for a while, but it's officially FDA approved now. It's official. It's official. We can use it. It was hotter off the presses when we recorded our last one. I think. Yep. Now we're like a week late to the party. <laughs> yeah, right. It's fine. Yeah. We'll get over it. Mm-hmm. We'll quit mentioning it every every two seconds of this podcast. Will we or won't? No, we? probably not. But uh, yeah, so get that one now, and uh, we just add into our arsenal arsenal of treatment options. Um, I guess that's a good spot to. Throw out the uh, the password, perfect spot. I was gonna wait a little bit longer so it's not quite in the middle, but then I was like, I'm gonna forget. So, oh, it's a smack dab! So, uric acid, all one word, capital letters. That's your password for yeah, you thought it was gonna be gout 23, like <laughs> we've been using, but we just decided that's. To that's, the to problem, that's
1: the problem with doing that is people are going to be able to guess it. Right. They're and just going to look at so, the title and say, oh, that must be Gout 20. And in
0: three months, they're going to be like, it's, but it's 2024. And that's when I'm listening
1: to it. Yeah, the, people are going to be listening to these things in 2025, and they're going to be like, huh, 23.
0: <laughs> but not this episode. Nope. It's
1: U-R-I-C-A-C-I-D. Nailed it. No space.
0: No space. You look, for real, you look like I'm me trying to spell anything without looking directly at it. I'm just waiting second. for the
1: emails saying that it's not working because they're putting space.
0: Uh, that's a good point, yeah. No space. If you send us an email. Which it would, would be completely unhelpful. Right, because I'm will just i going to send you a sarcastic email. Back. No, I'm just kidding. I won't do that. But, uh, yeah, please don't leave a space and then be mad at us for it. But, anyways, let's jump into uh, more maintenance Yes, because that's going to be an important piece. Obviously, we want to treat the acute uh, situation, but going forward, you know, are we going to actually, you know, continue the patient on medication, and do we want to have them on prophylactic medication regimen to? keep them from having another or at least reduce the risk of them having another flare. It kind of depends. You know, it's, it does not mean that every single patient who has a flare, especially if it's their first flare needs to automatically just be put on maintenance therapy. Um, you know, it's something that needs to be discussed and, you know, obviously maybe brought up the first flare just to, just so the patient has an idea of what, you know, is to come possibly, but uh urate lowering therapy is something that at least it should be addressed, but it's not a must for just anybody who's had a gout attack, um, so urate lowering therapy, we would consider it to being like a preferred recommendation for a few different situations. If the patient has any tophi um, present already on physical exam or even you know imaging, uh, that would obviously indicate that they're you know the the gout is more severe and and there's already damage done. So we probably need to put them on something. Um, if they've had two or more gout attacks, you know within that last year. Also a reason why we may need to consider urate lowering therapy, and then if they have chronic kidney disease stage two or worse, and you know we're worried about them not being able to excrete as much uric acid and as a as that byproduct uh, or waste product, then that that would also be a concern and a reason why we would want to you know add on urate lowering therapy. The initiation process can be a little bit. I guess tricky, so to speak, because you don't want to start a urate lowering therapy that's that's intended for maintenance therapy um, immediately during the attack, or sometimes even after the first attack. You know, sometimes you know if it, it's something where we'll if they had an attack, we'll give lifestyle management, and then hopefully uh, they won't have another one. Um, but we typically will have uh, some time in between starting the urate-lowering therapy, and the, the initial gout, or at least the gout flare that made us want to pursue urate-lowering therapy. So we'll talk about that in here in a little bit more. But uh, our major class of medications that we come to and you know, we think of maintenance therapies are xanthine oxidase inhibitors. Um, xanthine oxidase, and I'll pull this up on my screen real quick, Um this is a uh, flow chart from the DePiro's pharmacotherapy book. Um, you can see the uh, nucleic acid breakdown at the top here, but this, um, those purines get broken down into hypoxanthine, and then xanthine oxidase converts them into xanthine and then eventually uric acid. So this, your xanthine oxidase enzyme, is kind of the rate-limiting step for that uric acid production. So we want to block that particular enzyme. And we do that with our xanthinoxase inhibitors, uh, allopurinol or febuxostat. Those you know, are the, the.
1: The older I get, the more I realize I could totally make those graphics for these books.
0: Oh yeah, they're just they're just some very, of them. Some of them are really like artist, you know, renditions of a cellular process or something. Yeah, the some flowcharts. Some of them, charts, some of them like, you yeah. know,
1: they farmed out to a P one pharmacy student.
0: Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what are you gonna do?
1: I mean, I could, I could do that.
0: You could, but it would also take you time which I don't think you want to have to do that. It's it easier would. just to use theirs. Yes, very true. <laughs> just reference it and good to <laughs> <you> go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, alpyrinol, mm-hmm. that are the two options in this class. And like I said, they're blocking the conversion of hypoxanthine into xanthine and eventually uric acid by blocking that enzyme. There are some considerations and things to maybe, cons- maybe uh a bigger consideration, I would say, than I once thought of. But there have been documented hypersensitivity reactions um, to allopurinol, especially as the one that I, you know, I've actually seen now in in person, um, because you can actually do HLA B fifty eight zero one allele testing prior to use of allopurinol to see if the patient would be a higher likelihood of experiencing hypersensitivity reaction, um, and that's specifically uh, more prevalent in patients of Asian descent, but i've always kind of like chalked that up to a textbook you know type of thing like no one actually checks that um but i have actually seen now a a a case of hypersensitivity after a patient started allopurinol. and all is that recent um it was probably within the last year um so it was yeah it was it was first time they'd ever gotten it didn't think it and ended up in the hospital with how did it present I want to say it was a uh, severe skin reaction, and uh, the patient just broke out everywhere. And yeah. um, it just—they didn't know what it was at first. and That was the only thing that they could, you know, figure figure out doing their differential diagnosis process. Yeah. And uh, yeah, stopped the allopurinol, it all went away and got better.
1: You know what's crazy to me? What's that? When you look at these things and, and you're learning and you're thinking about the textbooks, how difficult it can be to suss out exactly like what's causing those sorts of skin reactions, especially for people who are on. Whole bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. and then they have a rash, even a severe rash. I mean, likely they figured it out that out that, that was what was going on here, but sometimes it can be pretty difficult to mm-hmm. kind of. You go with the most likely culprit, All right? But it could be something different, right? You know, but then it gets documented and you know, stays along with them, just like, you know, a penicillin allergy when they're young or something, and Mm -hmm. it's very hard
0: to determine what it actually was. Can be, yeah. Yeah. Luckily, in this case, they had had just started alipirinol, and and it it was kind of like the only thing that it could have been from a med standpoint, so that person got lucky there, and they were able to identify it quickly, but yeah, so it it may be uh, a good idea if you have, if the patient that's got the resources and, um, you know, the insurance covers it and all that, then maybe getting that genetic testing just to be on the safe side. Um, but particularly patients of Asian descent would be uh, at higher risk for that genetic variant. So be worth checking on that if you can. Yeah. Um, if we have a patient on either allopurinol or for bucks stat, we want to typically monitor CBCs, uh, LFTs, renal function, just kind of periodically while they're on therapy. Um, the, the doses are pretty, um, pretty different between the two agents. Uh, Allopurinol is usually a starting dose of around 100 milligrams, and then it's titrated up slowly to a max of 800 milligrams, which I can say, at least in my experience, I I can't think of any person that I've ever seen on that high of a dose of you. No. And I I feel like a lot of people forget that that's the actual, I think the most I've ever seen is 400 milligrams.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I can only imagine the only people who would be on that would be somebody who's following the guideline that says they need to be at a certain york acid acid level
0: level. and they're trying to push it down yeah yeah or their gout flares just keep happening oh they just keep happening but yeah there's some other ways we can we can do that without continuing to go up on the dose there's some augmentation options and things but don't forget that there is a max dose of 800 milligrams because sometimes we're too quick to augment when we can just keep them on the same bed and increase the dose um, if you do get all, anywhere close to 800 milligrams, though, you typically want to divide the dose into a couple times a day just to make it a little bit easier for them to tolerate the GI issues and stuff. Uh, if the patient has a creatinine clearance of 10 to 20 mils per minute, then uh, the max would be 200 milligrams per day, and you probably want to start off with a lower dose, like 50. For buxistat, it's a little bit easier. Um, 40 milligrams daily is the starting dose, and then it goes up to a max of 80 milligrams daily, and there's no renal dose adjustments, so that's a, you know, a nice thing about phoboxostat, it's one of the, uh, that was one of their claim to fames, I feel like, whenever... It's
1: probably the only positive, right?
0: Pretty much, yeah, because it was expensive for, you know, especially historically, it was really expensive compared to allopurinol. and, uh... Wasn't there an issue with, um... I don't want to say it if
1: it's not true. Wasn't there an issue with cardiovascular concerns? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. We're gonna get we're to gonna that. We're gonna get that okay. Did, sorry. You don't remember that? We
0: talked about that the, the uh...
1: We're literally about to talk about it in just a couple mm-hmm. minutes. It's so, okay. So funny how it all falls out of my head.
0: <laughs> it's okay. It's all good. It's why we're doing this podcast we can remember it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so that's why we do every topic twice now. It's our new policy.
1: <laughs> After we record every episode, we re record it we just record in case. It. Just so we can and laugh. Just so we can learn about it. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's that way we can learn about it the right way. Yeah. But yeah, um, so both of these medications, uh, are, you know, available and still widely used, but the Febuxostat doesn't have the same issues with renal dose adjustment. So some people like the, the easiness of that. Um, Um, you want to mention the mobilization gout?
1: Yeah. I'll mention that, um, there is a concern about mobilization gout, whether they term it that way or not, but, um, basically a concern that uh, when starting one of these urate-lowering therapies, it can prompt a gout attack. Um, so,
0: Or a worsening of the current flare. Or a worsening of the current
1: flare. So um, a lot of times they will augment with, or bridge, I guess, with colchicine, 0. 0.6 milligrams once to twice a day, or an NSAID for the first three to six months of starting it to try to prevent that from happening.
0: Yeah, I, I guess the thought is that when you start to lower the levels, um, any type of, I guess, acid stores or something can then uh, be be released into solution and then that can precipitate out another flare or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I was saying earlier, if you're in the middle of a flare, you don't want to just start something like allopurinol, especially by itself. You right. could worsen that initial flare too. So right. Good. But using colgazine or an NSAID along with it can kind of mitigate that risk and hopefully keep that inflammation or that inflammatory response from occurring, even if it uh, was going to without it.
1: Right. And you mentioned the tolerability. Um, yeah. Taking with food or right after a meal can
0: help reduce the stomach upset. Ideally, yes. Ideally. So, cardiovascular risk. <laughs> Let's talk about that, Cole. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the
1: thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So, it was. it's kind of weird because in 2018, the study came out. Um, called, it was the CARES trial, and uh, it was basically looking at cardiovascular risk between allopurinol versus stat head-to-head. And the all-cause mortality seemed to be higher uh, higher risk with febuxostat. Cardiovascular mortality was also noted to be higher with febuxostat compared directly to allopurinol. So at the time, that was considered to be like a very big reason to not use febuxostat. And then fast forward a couple years later to 2020, um, the FAST trial got pro- published and febuxostat versus allopurinol, once again, looking at composite cardiovascular outcomes, non-inferior to allopurinol, um, for the, at least the primary composite of cardiovascular risk uh, outcome or events, so right. I should say. So I guess my personal take on it is to be on the safe side. Um, and for usually the cost is cheaper anyway. Um, allopurinol would be my ideal go-to option. Uh, and then if a patient, uh, has renal disease or I don't feel like adjusting the dose of the alpirinol based on their kidney function, then maybe Phoblox is that. But I tend to lean towards the alpirinol just until we know for – I need at least one more study to show me that the 2018 thing was a fluke.
1: Yeah, I'd agree. And you know what's so funny is that um, I actually talked about this section last week, Mm -hmm. and yet I still forgot. And I'm going to blame the fact that I went on vacation like right after we recorded, Mm -hmm. ate a whole bunch of food. You did. Like a lot of food. Yeah,
0: cold-gained. A lot of I weight. did
1: and just got back yesterday. So he's
0: getting vacation. I'm, I'm
1: virtually in a fugue state. Who right. knows what happened at work today? <laughs> did I injure anybody? I hope not. Did I hurt anybody? Hopefully not. Too much food. I don't know that I will eat that much food on my vacation again.
0: Yeah. Well, keep it in your back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> never know. It might happen again. But yeah. Good. Okay, so the, the, the debate will continue between the Alapir and Alamful Bucks stat. Um, one thing I, we say we weren't going to retell stories, but this is kind of funny because I'll... Uh, I did I did tell this in the last one but you guys didn't get to hear it. Um, but uh, I had a, a former student, he's now a pharmacist and and doing well. But uh, I guess it was right or, it was must have been 2018 cuz um, his student uh, Gleb Yeah, it
1: was cuz he was in my class and that would have been Was Gleb we in were, your class? He was. Yes. Oh, that's and that's hilarious. that's when we would have been doing our grand rounds presentations.
0: That's funny. I yeah, picture you being like way before him, but at times, no, no. Yeah, no, yeah, no. you Okay, so no. Um, I was still
1: a student when we started this. That's true. I which forget. it was like I, 2018. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. It was or maybe 2017. I can't
0: So, remember. yeah, I totally forgot about that. Okay. So, Cole was a guy in Cole's class that I was advising for his grand rounds. And uh, he was looking at um, one of the other medications that we're going to talk about um, here in just a little bit. But he had asked me, like, is there anything, because you, you guys are familiar with Dr. Wayne Ward that's been on the podcast a few times. And uh, one of the, the ultimate intimidation factors of born over grand rounds, um, at least at MUSC college of pharmacy is what is Dr. Uh, going to ask because he's always got these really tough questions and students. It's ridiculous because he's the nicest person on planet earth, but students freak out because he's very much, a lot smarter than most, than most of us. And so, uh, all of us, all of us. Yeah. Let's call it what it is. <laughs> but, uh, but basically he'd asked me, you know, what do you think and he's going to ask me? And this study had come out like, Maybe three days earlier. And mm-hmm. I, first of all, I'm proud of myself for knowing it. I'm like, yes, I can. So I'm telling him about it, telling him about the CARES trial. And I was like, he's probably going to ask about this, you know, since you're talking about allopurinol and along with this other new med. And uh, sure enough, he, he, asked that question first thing out of his mouth is did you happen to see the study was published a few days ago and i'm like yes Mm -hmm. i nailed and i'm thinking he's the glove's just gonna go through this and like just act like it was no big deal yeah and he as soon as he asked the question he just like lights up and he's like aha he goes well dr corvino told me you were gonna ask (laughs) that and so yes i do have the answer and i did read. i was like no Gleb, that's not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> you're supposed to just take it like you of course you knew that. You're
1: supposed to drop the info and then drop the mic. Right.
0: And just be like, next question. <laughs> <But>
1: <laughs> Give me some more
0: Dr. Work. he Dr. Word cracked up. <laughs> he's he's like, You're not supposed to tell me that <laughs> So yeah. Great. Shout out to Gleb. He's a good good guy. Well, you gotta take you gotta
1: make use of your advisors for this. I guess you know? so. Um, okay, well, we'll talk about another um, uh, class, I guess, or another medication that uh, acts a little differently, which is probenicid. Um It's a uricosuric, which means that it inhibits the reabsorption of uric acid in the proximal convoluted tubule. And effectively you're going to um, uh, pee out more uric acid, excrete more uric acid. Um, it's contraindicated with aspirin, with aspirin and uh, it can cause uric, or it's contraindicated with uric acid kidney stones. Um, there's a warning in um, impaired renal function, less than 30 milliliters per minute can decrease the effectiveness for obvious reasons, and it can cause um, hemolytic anemia as well. But it is an option that could be added to a xanthine oxidase inhibitor, if need be.
0: And I, I think it's one of those situations, too, where, y- yes, uric acid, renal stones, obviously, if, if you know what your the stone was made up of, um, then it would be great, but even I, I believe even uric raising uric acid levels in the the bladder can still precipitate out even like a calcium oxalate mm-hmm. stone, even if it's not directly uric acid. But uh, yeah, definitely check the history for for uric uh, acid stones. Especially. I think we
1: mentioned last time, but a blood pressure medication that can have some uricus-uric effects yeah. is losartan. Um, so if you're treating somebody with blood pressure, losartan is generally a pretty good. Med option anyway, but if you're choosing your aces and ARBs, then pretty reasonable option to maybe assist with some urea
0: lowering. And it's and it apparently is the only ARB that has that uricose uric property because they they did another study with herbisartan, I believe, and didn't find any sort of changes in uric acid levels. And I think they, I want to say they tried to eat with another one too. But uh, yeah, so losartan is at least the one that we know of that has uricose uric properties. And so yeah, definitely a good option. Whereas uh, HCTZs and then dapamide and all those maybe not be wouldn't be as good because they're going to raise the uric acid right. reabsorption. Right. Um, and then uh, did you mention that probenicid, sometimes you'll see it being added to xanthine okay. oxidase in Okay, cool. Not very often. I, in fact, I can't think of the last time I saw probenicid, but it is still out there.
1: Yeah.
0: So now we have uh, our... Fairly, I'd say new, but it's really not new anymore. It's more uh, comparatively can be. It's kind of new, I guess. But showing it's the, our age. Yeah, yeah, it's the one, yeah, our age. It's the one that uh, that Glob was actually discussing during his grand rounds, and that's Lisinurad, or brand names Rampic. Um, so this is a urat one inhibitor. So uric acid uh, transport and uh, or transporter, um, and so you're blocking the reabsorption of that uric acid again in, in the nephron, so that it, your body's not reabsorbing that. Um, it is contraindicated in patients who have a creatinine clearance less than 30. And if they are on dialysis or have a history of a kidney transplant, um, they would also be um, not a candidate for receiving less Some adverse effects that can be a little bit more common acute renal failure. <laughs> Let's just start off with that one. That's, that's uh, one you, you don't want. But um, that, that's kind of the big issue with, with the Cynorat is the potential acute effects on the kidney that can be problematic. Um, headache is also very common. And then um as well. And so, um, you know, a patient who has stones and, and a history of stones, just like with the probenis, you want to use some, some caution there because it's just still dumping that uric acid into the bladder and eventually the urine. Um, the key with Lucinarad is it has to be taken with his antheon inhibitor. And the one that it was studied uh, in combination with is allopurinol. And so the patient has to be on at least 300 milligrams of allopurinol before they can even be considered for Lucinarad. If not, the uh, risk of an AKI goes way up. And, um, you know, is, is, it's a straight contraindication. So if you give that to somebody, it's.
1: Could not, be a nice a nice
0: lawsuit. Yeah. Um, so make sure they're on at least 300 milligrams of alipirinol. Uh It does need to be something where the patient stays hydrated, so taking it in the morning with food and water is ideal, uh, but obviously staying hydrated reduces the risk of that renal injury. And they do have a combination product that's available. Um, Derzalo is the brand name, but it's allopurinol and lisinorad in, in combination. Yeah, I feel like this is a the big pushback that people had with lisinorad is you know, the studies were looking at the 300 milligram allopurinol and then the addition of lisinorad. Well, it's like, well, why did we have to add this other more expensive medication? What about increasing Pushing the dose of the allopurinol? And mm-hmm. that's where I, I was first like looking when I was f- looking at this drug for the first time, you know, back in 2018 or whatever. I'm like, well, 800 milligrams. and We're not even close to that before we're adding this and it's causing AKIs and all kinds of stuff. It, it yep. just didn't make a lot of sense. So I and I feel like the the market has kind of spoken the same, <laughs> has agreed with that, because I can't think of ever seeing this one prescribed of you or seen anybody actually on it. No. Yeah. And been... if there's
1: one thing we like to do, it makes
0: sense. <laughs> right. We're all about that. Yes. All right, man. Let's talk about uric acid gold. You still kind of talked about them briefly, but you want to expand yeah. on the different guidelines and... Yeah.
1: So... Um... You know, with your with uric acid, we're obviously trying to lower it, and we presume that that's going to decrease the risk of having a gout attack. Um, there's two guidelines that kind of conflict in in what they suggest, or at least one's not as specific. So there's the American College of Rheumatology the american college of physicians the american college of physicians does not make recommendations for goal uric acid levels because they say there's insufficient evidence doesn't mean that they don't think that you need to lower uric acid levels it doesn't even mean that they don't think that a lower uric acid level lowers your risk it just means that they don't think there's strong enough evidence to say if you get this uric acid level less than six then there's going to be a clinical clinical meaningful clinically meaningful decrease in gout attacks or whatever Um, So the College of Rheumatology says for most patients, we want to titrate our urate lowering therapy to a target serum uric acid level less than six. Um, Some patients might need less than five to control symptoms, and they recommend monitoring uric acid levels every two to five weeks while you're up titrating the urate lowering therapy. And then once you reach the goal, do it every six months. So definitely a more specific recommendation, but that's kind of the two big ones in America.
0: Yeah, I feel like the co- the American College of Physicians tends to be a little bit more relaxed with some of their goals more and more blase. Yeah, yeah, I got their guidelines in general. I think like,
1: they like to leave it up to clinical decision making. Yeah, know? that's kind of their thing. No, I get if, it. If
0: things are if things are like not black and white. Yeah, yeah, very clear that you know there's an advantage to one strategy over the other. Right. But uh, but yeah, so the I, I would say that, you know it's really clinician specific and also patient specific. Yeah. You know, just because. The data is not crystal clear on whether or not checking uric acid levels is going to improve outcomes. If the patient if has peace of mind by knowing that their uric acid level is yeah. lower, why, why not? It's not going um, to hurt anything. Yeah, especially if the insurance is going to pay for the lab and right. all that. I so maybe
1: it's like a, from a population health standpoint, they don't want to recommend everybody right. always get their uric acid levels monitored. doesn't mean it can't benefit a lot of people yeah, the, or, the, yeah,
0: for people who want that, you know, definitely. Uh, I, I would, mean, Yeah, I would too. I've been, I've talked to some people that have gout that, uh, are like, I'm, I don't care what the guidelines say. I'm checking my, I'm going to get my levels checked because yeah. it gives them peace of mind. So yeah. just, uh, but no, there is two conflicting sets of guidelines out there. Um, we already mentioned uh, some of the other medications, like the hypertension options and things. Um, you know, the losartan, the uh, and then avoiding thiazide or thiazide likes. So, uh, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of options out there for the management of gout. Um, if if what we've already talked about, um, you know, it, the other alternative to you know, the or some of these other add-ons to allopyrinol uh, would be something like colchizine daily. That's we've mentioned that a couple times, but colchizine uh, once daily up to, up to twice daily is kind of like the max dose for maintenance therapy. And at that point, you're making sure that the, the, the inflammation never starts to begin with if in, in, to cause the initial gout flare. So the colgazine uh, working alongside the allopurinol from a, obviously a different mechanism. Right? Right. I, I I would say, at least in my experience, that's probably the combo that I see much more widely used than any of the others we mentioned. Right. I did have a staff the other day for the first time, though, yeah. in a while. I was like, hey, that drug does, people still get people it. People
1: still take it. Somebody <laughs> prescribes it. But
0: let's, you want to finish up with a quick thing on pseudogout?
1: Yeah, really briefly, we'll mention pseudogout, which is an interesting phenomenon of something that, as you would think, looks like gout, but isn't actually the same as gout because they are calcium pyrophosphate, calcium pyrophosphate dihydrate um, deposits, CPPD. I'll just call it that. It's a disease of those deposits called pseudogout. It's due to the CPPD crystals depositing into the articular tissues and causing very similar um, symptoms to gout. It can range from no symptoms to acute um, synovitis with cartilage calcifications. Um, You would have to, do a biopsy of the synovial fluid or tissue showing those specific CPPD crystals to actually diagnose it and know that that's what it is. But we mentioned how the clinical manifestations can be slightly different and more insidious than an acute gouty attack. And during an attack, the white blood cell count in a joint aspiration would typically range between 5,000 and 25,000 cells per microliter.
0: The, the good news is that for the acute treatment anyway, um, pretty standard as far as... Are similar, I should say, to to a regular gout right. um, flare. You know, NSAIDs, colchicine, or corticosteroids are usually the three that we would go with, or a combination um, two of those three. Uh, the If those are not uh, working or there's contraindications or what have you, then uh, adrenal corticotropic hormone or ACTH uh, injections can also be given if uh, the patient has confirmed pseudogout. And then for more like long-term maintenance therapies, you may see some of the DMARDs like methotrexate or hydroxychloroquine, um, possibly even surgery being used to as maintenance. But um, definitely a, a different approach. Um, disease than regular standard gout like we think right i, I had a, a patient a couple weeks ago now I, I told this in the last but i'm gonna repeat it anyway because i think it's funny it's
1: funny that we have to caveat that because yeah you're the no, only people yeah, who know it I, we were, I, I wasn't gonna say anything
0: yeah but i have to be honest <laughs> we, gotta
1: be, we gotta be honest gotta be, i'm listeners. gonna feel like a
0: liar if i don't <laughs> <laughs> like just never told this before no but a, a patient i was going through his meds. And this is the first time i had, had met with him and He's He had some other issue going on, and he was like, yeah. And then besides all of that, he goes, then I, I think I have what I have assume is gout, and then I find out I have fake gout. <laughs> and that's what he was calling pseudo. He referred to it as fake gout the entire appointment. That's hilarious. cracking me up. But uh, I was like, yeah, well, he's like, you know, it's not even uric acid that's causing it. It's <laughs> something else. I was like, yeah, that's true. It's pretty knowledgeable. But, yeah, um, he has fake gout. So there you have it, folks. Uh, there's our episode of redo For the third time.
1: And now there's a third long-lost episode out there that you will never, ever hear. Right.
0: Unfortunately. Well, you wouldn't be able to hear it because we can't hear it either because the audio (laughs) got ruined. But uh, it's just out there in the universe somewhere. But thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, if you are a Free CE member, make sure to go to the website, and uh, that's FreeCE.com. You can go under learn and look for this uh, specific episode. You'll put in that password we gave you earlier, and you'll have a 10-question, multiple-choice quiz to take. Thank you so much to FreeCE for continuing to partner with us. And um, also want to mention that um, we had our uh, guest uh, on the, the show last time, Dr. Alex Poppin, um high powered medicine author uh he wrote that book on it's it's in its second edition now and he's his book is a basically a summary of various landmark clinical trials with you know breakdowns of some of the stats and the the outcomes they were looking at, inclusion criteria and all the good stuff you need. Very, very good resource. Um, so make sure you check that out. I'll have his uh, link in the show notes as well. Um, long time friend of the podcast, sponsor of the podcast, Pearls. Um, make sure you go pearls.com slash core console to check out the, the, the free version of the app. And um, it's a very, very good drug info app that's adding more and more content each month. Um, and then if you want more like structured PowerPoint slide style, uh, episodes or or topics to cover, then check out our Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash core consult Rx. And, there's various pharmacotherapy lectures on there. You can download not only the link to watch the lecture, but also the PowerPoint slides as well. And, um, we're, uh, we're going to be giving away a free digital copy of uh, Alex's book is, is part of the Patreon account. If you sign up for a year, which I think is like $30 and some change, you can get a year's worth of access, including all the new stuff we post. So it's an affordable uh, review for those of you looking for such uh, things. Anyways, if you have questions for Cole or myself, make sure you reach out to us, email, phone number in the show notes or any of the social media platforms. And we will see you guys later. Have a good night.